0: And we're live. It is Thursday, November 11th. That's Armistice Day, Veterans Day, you know, the day we all sing La Marseillaise, 5.01 p.m.
1: Polish Independence Day.
0: It is Polish Independence Indian Day. Polish Independence Day. Um, yeah. yeah. How about Estonia, no, Tomas? Thomas.
2: No, but we celebrate Polish Independence Day
0: excellent um, 501 p.m. happy Independence Day to the people of Poland uh, uh, congratulations to the French on prevailing in World War one um, and uh, uh, a warm happy Veterans Day to veterans all over the United States it is 502 p.m. Eastern Time in in New York and uh, New Haven and uh, Washington, DC. It is 11 p.m. Poland time, is that right, Anne? And it is midnight Estonia time, is that right, Tomas? And we are here to talk migration, Belarus, the the unget riddable -riddable, uh, get-riddable Alexander Lukashenko (laughs) <laughs> and um, migrants in Poland, um, or are trying to get into Poland. Um, so Anne, get us started. You were actually at the uh, Estonian, uh, not Estonian, uh, Belarusian-Polish uh, border today. Uh, bring us up to speed. What's going on?
1: It was, it was actually uh, yeah, a day ago. But yes, um, um, we're in the middle of a very strange crisis. Um, And the crisis is a crisis that was created by the Belarusian government, which is literally importing migrants from the Middle East or migrants or people or refugees. I don't know what the correct word is. I want to use something respectful, but um, people who come from Iraq, uh, who come from Syria, who come from Yemen and other places, um, is offering them visas and plane trips, often at very high prices, to fly to Minsk. When they arrive in Minsk, um, they, get, they have hotels that have been booked in advance and they're then offered rides to the border. And the rides to the border sometimes are taxis or drivers and sometimes they are uh, soldiers or sometimes people in uniform, not not everybody's able to say. Once they arrive at the border, they discover that they have to cut the fence. Um, and some people do it, they cut the fence. Some people wanna go back and when they, want to go back to Minsk, they're blocked by men with guns who say, you can't go back. Um, And so we have a very bizarre phenomenon of people camping on the Polish-Bielorussian border in between the two countries. It is now minus four degrees on the border, um, so it's freezing. Uh, These are people from the Middle East. They're not dressed. They're not prepared for this. Most of them were not told that this was part of the package. They imagined that this was some kind of easy passage to Germany or some easy passage to Europe, something easier than the Mediterranean route, which they know is 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 uh, is dangerous. Um, and they arrive and discover that that's not what they expected. Um, on the other side, we have on the Polish side, we have the the Polish government, which initially sought to use this circumstance for its benefit. We have a far right government in Poland, which um, sought to portray the migrants as terrorists, as evil, actually as um, sexual perverts. There was a t- Polish <laughs> news segment which showed something that looked vaguely like a Middle Eastern person having sex with an animal, and this was shown as evidence that these are people on the border are doing this kind of thing. Later on, it turned out that was some kind of strange film that had been circulating on the internet for since the 1970s. But... Um, so the government sought to use this and to show how tough they are. They're pushing back against this dangerous attack on Poland from the east. Um, there's been a, as a result, there's been a total collapse of order in the situation. In fact, many thousands of people have made it through this corridor and they've made it to Germany. Um, many others are stuck uh, in the border where they are um, camping in the cold. Some people have starved to death and died. Um, There has grown up, in the absence of this kind of vacuum, there's no Polish government spokesman you can talk to about it. There's no information about what's happening. And so you've had this really amazing set of civic organizations arising from nothing, really, um, to help, I mean, really just prevent people from dying. Um, Bring food and blankets and so on to these people to help them figure out what to do next. Um, and to somehow ease the situation. But it's one of the ugliest, um, ugliest situations I can recall seeing in a long time. Um, you have people who, you know, I, I, I witnessed a group, of Kurdish family, including very small children, and an elderly woman who could barely walk, who were sitting on a forest floor. I don't know if they really knew where they were, um, this is a. it's a it's a forest in Eastern Poland. They don't speak English. they don't speak Polish. They don't know any Polish history. It's actually a forest with a long history of hosting partisan movements. Um, and you know, they're there, and they, I don't know what they expected, but they somehow thought they would be in Germany, and they're not. Um, and they're surrounded by a strange combination of border guards who are themselves very confused about what to do. Um, And as I said, these local activists who are very brave, but they're not professional, you know, they're not professional humanitarian aid groups. Um, And there's there's a there's a vacuum and there's chaos. And it's always when in situations when you have vacuums and chaos that you get terrible things happening. Um, And we're all very worried there will be shooting. There will be some terrible incident that will happen in the next few days. Um, It's it's. It's ugly and it's accelerating.
2: Uh, hello. Uh, I can talk. Okay. Um, and also I should add that um, well Poland is is most beset, but, uh, but it uh, actually began with Lithuania in August. Uh, since Lithuania has been most uh, uh, vocal about Belarus and hosts the, uh, uh, the uh, head of, nomin- I mean, not the nominal, but rather the probably elected head of state, uh, Tihanovska, and uh, they've also done it to a lesser degree in, with Latvia. And currently the worry is and sort of vague threats have been made that um, they will do the same thing to Ukraine with the the fourth country with which Belarus has a border. And of course there, uh, the tensions are extremely high, have been ratcheted up to levels they have not been since 2014. Uh, In fact, uh, the head of the CIA, Burns, was in Moscow a few days ago, talking to his counterpart Patrushev, and apparently even spoke on the phone to Vladimir Putin, uh, saying uh, that, um, don't do it, don't invade, and Putin apparently, at least according to press reports, said that uh, he has to teach the Ukrainians a lesson. So we're dealing with a rather big powder keg at this moment. And then to look at the response of the European Union. Um, Well, I mean, this is why I said, I hope hope we don't hear the expression deeply concerned here because those were the initial responses and that's been the standard response, but at least uh, the president of the commission, Ursula von der Leyen, was a little tougher uh and uh, the foreign ministers should be meeting now soon tomorrow the day after uh, about um taking steps with belarus and finally i'll stop is that the problem has been that uh the the sanctions that were imposed on belarus on top of the long-term sanctions that have been there but were upped with um, the hijacking of the plane with the with the journalist in the summer um, is that EU member states up till now have taken have claimed national cutouts on sanctions. Uh, probably the most egregious is Austria, uh, which is often the case. But anyway, uh, Austria. Um, uh, claimed a national cutout for Raiffeisen Bank, an Austrian bank, which is the primary, if not almost only, lender to Lukashenko, other than Russia, of course. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, this is one reason why sanctions have had such a uh, such a weak effect, uh, because basically, the, e, the EU, everyone runs for uh, their national cutouts. I mean, other people do it for potash, which is another export item. And it goes, I mean, just go through the member states, too many of them have their own special interests.
3: Wait, do you, do you, do you um, t-
0: uh, Thomas just left? Oh, he, no, nope, he's here. Do you, do you see I that just change? accidentally vanished him for a moment? Okay. Do you see that changing?
1: Maybe Anne can say. Is that Poland, which has its own conflicts right now with everybody, actually with America and Europe and the Czechs and you know and the Germans and so on, um, has not requested European Union help. Um, which and there are systems in place that could help process migrants or could help send them back. Even um, it has not asked for any help. It has not requested that. And has not really engaged in any international diplomacy, and so any diplomacy that's happened has been on the you know the the, the EU is taking it on itself. But the Polish government, which is essentially now isolated, it has very few friends in the world, um, has not made any efforts to make and make this into an international incident or situation, um, and that's you know and. That's you know the, that's one of the only answers to this problem is that you need all of Europe involved. You need certainly Poland's neighbors involved. Um, you need some kind of process to deal with the immigrants and not this ad hoc, you know, local people running into the forest with cans of soup, um, and then they and they really refuse to do that. And that's that's one of the things that's underlying are, this problem.
3: Are you sensing that this story is getting through? Because it definitely got I mean, uh, I'm I'm an I'm an avid news consumer. But this struck me as being like of extreme importance. I was wondering if um, you've, you're, you you're at least in Europe, you're getting a sense that there that that this is perceived as a as a real bad crisis?
1: It depends which country, but yes, I think a lot of European media, I mean, there were a lot of European media on the border in the last few days. I'm about to write about it myself. I've just been trying to gather more material and make sure I have something to say. So I, I will write something in the next two or three days. Um, but but I mean, it's, it's hard to understand genuinely because what you have is, the Belarusian government using desperate people from the Middle East as a kind of weapon. You know, we're going to bring all these people here. We're going to use them to break down your border. We're going to cause political problems. You know, we're going to create havoc. We're going to create problems in Poland. We're going to create problems between Poland and Europe. Um, and. You know it's it's not the it's it's has some resemblance to the problems on the mexican border and there's some of the same legal and moral issues you know what do you do with people who have you know fled from one country gone through two or three other countries and then they arrive somewhere and they declare they want asylum i mean you have the same problem with iraqi kurds i mean they've come to poland via turkey they've come via you know dubai they've come by belarus you know what? Why, why should they get asylum in Poland or Germany? That's not how the rules work, and it's the so, same issues that you have with 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 Central Americans arriving at the at the U.S. Mexico border. But the added element, the added element, is the deliberate creation of the problem. This is not a spontaneous. This problem didn't exist two months ago. Um, it's been it's been manufactured. So I'm. Uh, um... Starting with
0: Anne and then uh, Tomas, I'm interested in your sense of uh, what this is, what Lukashenko is weaponizing this in pursuit of is this about punishing lithuania and poland for uh support of the uh uh belarusian opposition is it about forcing the eu trying to force the eu to relax sanctions uh is it about uh doing putin's bidding in some respect like what what's the game here
1: i mean i think all of the above i mean there there are multiple games here. As I said, you say, one is, I think the original, the fact that, that these refugees were originally sent to Lithuania, which, is, which has been hosting the most important host of the Belarusian opposition, was a kind of, it was seen immediately as a kind of response to that. But I do think, you know, I mean, uh, you know, the Russians fund anti-immigration far-right parties all across Europe. So um, this is meant to be grist for their mill. Um, it, you know, the, the Russians have an interest in seeing Poland further isolated from the rest of Europe. This will help that case too. Lukashenko may want some kind of payback um, in the way it's perceived, not entirely correctly, that Erdogan got a kind of pay, payback for for taking refugees in Turkey. So, you know, there 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 may be multiple reasons why he's doing this, um, and you know, it's an it's an interesting precedent for the future. Um, that you can use refugees as a tool of politics. It's, you know, they aren't just something, some spontaneous problem that happens because there's a there's a war or a crisis. Tomas, you know, what I, do you I, think? I, What's
0: Lukashenko's yes, yes. game?
1: Well, what, everything that
2: Anne said, um, but I think telling was, first of all, uh, Lavrov, Foreign Minister Lavrov's statement yesterday. Day before, where he said, well, if you want to get rid of this, then, uh, uh, as Ann mentioned, uh, pay Lukashenko money. And that's, I mean, this is what in Russia is called a krusha or a roof. In, in English, we call it extortion. I mean, this is classic, classic Mario Puzo godfather behavior. I mean, that's, uh, that's what it is. The other thing, as you mentioned, which I mentioned before, we went live, was that, in fact, and one of the worries here, we we lack a uh, border with Belarus, but we do have a border with Russia, is that about five years ago, Russia did this, and it did it to Finland, and it did it to Norway, uh, with the result that the Norwegians uh, shut down their border, and... uh, and in the case of uh, Finland, they they went and said, "Cut it out." Um, so, I mean, this is we've seen it before, and we you know we think it can happen again.
1: Sorry,
3: sorry, got it. Okay, um, uh, I was curious as to what. Um, There's a question to both of you. Um, what you think the United States can do? First, Anne, maybe you can take a stab at it. You're, you're muted. No. Yeah, you're You were you were muted. Now you're good. Now you're good
1: i didn't i didn't knowingly mute myself but um
0: i muted you uh, because we all have to be muted when we're not talking uh,
1: okay um uh the united states um which still you know despite it all is somehow perceived as the leader of the democratic world um i think can still make a difference as a leader i even had a conversation with a senior u.s diplomat who works on belarus a few months ago who said this to me you know that she still has the feeling when she walks into the room, people look at her and expect her to tell everyone what we're going to do next. Um, And, you know, convening a meeting, you know, convening a conversation in which we say, okay, let's start to take this problem of Belarus seriously. Let's not just react every time they do something nutty. You know, let's let's have a list of companies and people who we're going to sanction. Let's have it ready at each stage of development. Let's tell the Belarusians in advance what we're going to do if they do X and Y. Let's have a plan if they're going to cut off the gas, which they at one point said that they were. Um, Let's have an alternate, you know, planning for this, you know, understanding that these, we're now dealing with a set of countries. By the way, it's not just Belarus. I mean, you could look at, you know, Venezuela or Burma or Iran, or, you know, there's a series of countries now in the world who have as, as part of their, national interest, the desire to screw up, um, the, the, you know, the Western or the democratic world, whatever word we're using now, um, having a long-term plan. How do we deal with these transnational crises? How do we deal with the problems when these countries reach across borders and seek to impose their nasty dictatorships or their nasty forms of repression on other people in other countries? You know, we need a worked out plan in advance. We can't just react every time. Um, and, you know, each each time this thing happens, whether it's the Russians killing people in, you know, in Salisbury in England or in Berlin, which they did recently, or whether it's the Saudis murdering somebody, you know, in a foreign embassy or whether it's um, the Belarusians hijacking a plane. I mean, each time it happens, we scramble around and look for a reaction. I mean, this is this is not a system. I mean, there needs to be a systematic response. There needs to be an understanding that this is a um you know this is these are tactics. They're being used by lots of people, um and they have long term goals. Um, I've just written I, I this this I have written about, and this is coming out on Monday actually in the. Okay.
3: Atlantic. that's right. Um, before I move to Tomas, I'd just to say, um, i i I agree with I agree with what you said, um, a, a thousand percent uh, um, a, my colleague and I, um on Hathaway, um, we propose this thing in a kind of parallel to the Security Council, we called it the outcasting council, that is a kind of um, like a a, a representative group of nations who, where there's a plan in advance for like how you are going to um, be sanctioned um, um, for certain types of violations, egregious violations. um, uh, If there's no sense that there's a procedure um that everything's ad hoc you're just you're creating an environment um where people are going to abuse things um
1: i'm
3: sorry go go ahead go ahead then
1: no i was going to say i mean this the second element and this is a longer term problem is um eradicating the influence of the autocracies inside our own countries which is one of the reasons we don't have a plan um but that's that's a longer conversation Tomas, Tomas? uh, Well, uh,
2: I mean, there are a range of things. First of all, uh, I mean, as far as ad hoc solutions go, apparently there is an effort by the European Union, which uh, would be good if the United States were on board as well as sanctioning those airlines. Right now we're talking about Aeroflot and uh, Turkish Airlines. Uh, that are participating in this this uh, airlift, as it were. I mean, Belavia, the Belarus airline, is already sanctioned, uh, and here again, basically, the Irish were trying to block that because Belavia leases its planes from uh, from some Irish company, and that would mean. A loss of income for an Irish company. This is really this national self interest just rides over all of this stuff. And the way to think about it is kind of like the caveats in uh, ISAF during the Afghan war. Like, well, we can do this, but we won't do that. Now, what would be uh, a major step forward, but this is, you know, this requires like real serious work on the part of the EU, is that. Believe it or not, there is no such thing as a Security Council in the European Union. I mean, we do have NATO, and the NAC, or uh, the North Atlantic Council, meets daily, seven days a week, if if need be, to deal with crises, but they meet five days a week. Uh, But in the EU, we don't have a security structure built up that would actually deal with this. I mean, we have a fairly... uh, Fairly useless uh, head of foreign and security policy, uh, frankly, who does not really get it and is kind of stuck in hating the United States from his experiences in the during the Franco regime. Uh, but the European Union is—I uh, mean, they were probably bad. I'm not arguing, but it's just that it's like you know, this is 2021. It's not like 1974, um, and. Uh, we need we the eu is notoriously incapable of of acting partially because there are no structures for it partially because of the same uh individual interest i mean we've seen this over and over with the behavior of hungary in the eu uh blocking proposals unanimously supported by other countries most recently which Anne can talk about much more which is the, uh, the issue of cutting off funding for, for Poland for its, uh, for its um, uh, steps back from rule of law and politicizing judges. That, so we have a perfect storm happening. I mean, if it were to be happening in Lithuania or Latvia, the two countries that also are suffering from this, I mean, they, you know, Lithuanians say Frontex, that's the EU border guards, come on in. Um, I don't know, Latvia, I guess, the same. Um, I mean, Lat- neither of those countries has any political issues on rule of law or any of these things. Uh, so, I mean, that's there the EU can step in, in fact, at least. But right now, this is coming as Anset. I mean, this is coming at a moment where EU-Polish, I mean, as a member of the EU, Polish-EU relations are at a nadir.
0: So I want to ask about the supply side here. Um, uh, It seems to me one thing the US and the EU could do together without Polish cooperation is figure out how the information flow is working from the Belarusian government to a whole bunch of uh, innocent Iraqi Kurds on the ground or who whoever else. and uh, you know we have considerable communications abilities uh, through the government of Iraq, through the Iraqi Kurdish uh, authority, uh, through a bunch of the regional states. Um, why why can't we Anne? put out the message, if Belarusians come bearing travel travel options, that is not a vacation you should
1: take. So that's one of the things that's been suggested. And actually, the leader of the German Greens said something about this just today. She was proposing as a solution to the crisis exactly that, an information campaign. I mean, one of the curious things that I've been told By um, And and by the way, those of you who are really interested in this, there's a fantastic short documentary. It's about 20 minutes um, called Visa to Nowhere, made by a group of Polish journalists called Outriders. It's got English subtitles and partly in English. Um, And they go back and they interview people before they do this trip to Belarus, to Minsk, you know, and to Poland. Um, And of course, they all have very unrealistic expectations of what the trip will be like. And they have very high expectations of what they'll find you know when they eventually get to their Nirvana you know in in Dusseldorf or wherever it is that they're trying to go um, and when 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 presented with possible obstacles or reasons why this don't work they kind of dismiss it and they say well you know I I can't believe that true and we we've been told by um, by people who've been talking to the migrants that um, when the, apparently when they write, on social media, you know, notes back to people at home in in Iraqi Kurdistan and say, "Don't come." Um, they aren't believed. You know, people say, "Oh, that's just propaganda." You know, that's just European propaganda. You're trying to prevent us from coming. You know, you've set yourself up already, and you know, in Frankfurt, and you're trying to prevent us from going. Um, and the 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 desire to believe that there is some way out or there's some magic solution is so strong um, that it overcomes even testimony from people who've already been through this really hellish process. And so, yes, having a full-on, you know, government, um, I don't know, involving religious leaders, business leaders, campaign to convince people not to do that uh, is really one of the only ways to do it. Because even... Just simple messages from people who've been stuck on the Polish-Belarusian border for many days is not convincing to people who are still at home and who think this is the this is the route that will get them to Germany. Thomas. Thomas.
2: Well, uh, I posted on Twitter somewhere, and I was looking for it, but I can't find it at the moment. But there is, in fact, um, independent Russian TV that is non-state. TV um, has uh, posted uh, interviews with uh, with uh, I guess people from the region. I don't know what what nationality they are about basically being brutalized by the Belarusian forces. I mean, making people who say they don't want to go to Poland uh, sort of made to kneel, kicked in the face uh, by Belarusian soldiers. It's very awful. It's really really. Uh, so I mean, those things maybe might help. There's an additional complicating factor here, which is that there is the there's something called the Dublin Agreement in uh, a protocol, whatever I don't know, whatever the name is. But anyway, it's got Dublin in it, which was agreed to by the EU a number of years ago. Which is that, uh, it, and it was in response to uh, to people coming to the EU and all heading basically for either Germany, Sweden, or Finland, which are the countries with the, with the best social welfare programs for people, for anybody. And um, the Dublin Agreement basically says that the country you come to is the one where you ca- must apply for asylum. So if you want asylum, you don't. I mean, since Germany is completely surrounded by other EU countries, theoretically it should mean that no one is uh, is uh, even get to Germany. But the point is that these people. Uh, the other the other day, there was a video of them uh, at the border, uh, in on the Belarus side, yelling, "Germany, Germany, Germany!" I guess implying that no, we don't want to go to Poland. Uh, just let us through. I mean I guess that's the message because why would you be screaming Germany at the Polish border? Um, and um, uh, the thing is these people don't realize that Germany is not taking them in. I mean Germany has border go- border patrols on the Polish German border now. We too have I mean there have been I guess six cases of people being uh, uh, or groups, six Groups, I guess, uh, being stopped in Estonia by um, uh, by the by our border guards, where they're smuggling uh, people from crossing the border either in Latvia or Lithuania uh, to go to Finland, which, as I mentioned, is one of the three big sort of target countries for this movement. I saw David Priest here.
0: David Priest is indeed here, and uh, we will get to him in a moment. We are going to go to audience questions. The first question from uh, Andy McCurdy, who cannot come on screen. Uh, and uh, this was something that Tomas was talking about before we went live. How worried should we be about Russian troop buildup in, on the Ukrainian border? Tomas, what are your thoughts?
2: I would say a lot. <laughs> I mean, if the United States is really worried which basically the United States has has downplayed uh, earlier uh, tr- the uh, the troop buildup in March and April was basically downplayed by the United States so this is not like something new for the Biden administration or it is something new for the Biden administration meaning that uh, I mean when we saw it last time they were, the U.S. was fairly kind of calm about it. Now, the U.S. is not, and our folks, the one I, the ones I talk to, say that they do not recall the United States um, being this concerned, worried.
0: That is a cheerful answer to a cheerful question. Uh, what do you think, Anne? Is it uh, should we take should we be as alarmed as tomas sounds
1: you know so the possibility that there would be another russian attempt to invade ukraine has really been with us since 2014. um we've known it was a possibility i mean the russians have published the maps of the new ukrainian border that they want to see Um, they did that you know already seven years ago and so we know that you know the, the plan was was never abandoned um It is concerning to me that the uh, Biden administration thinks it's important enough to start warning European allies right now and this week. And I don't have, you know, I I don't have the, um, you know, I don't have the data in front of me to tell you exactly why that's happening. But there have been this, there's been this gradual troop buildup for some time. Um, And at this time, you know, in the past, there's usually been some kind of military exercise or there's been some reason for it. And this time it appears to be happening for no for no known reason. Um, and there's, of course, no political trigger at the moment either. Um, and therefore, people are, are making this leap of assumption that there is some connection to this hysteria at the Polish border and the scenes of you know Belarusians pushing migrants through the fence um, in an apparent attempt to create some kind of conflict that that may be some kind of distraction from it, from something else. You know, maybe that's over-conspiratorial, maybe that's overthinking it, but that's, that's one of the reasons why people are so concerned. Tomas?
2: Thomas? Yeah. One of the things that the, um, I mean, the Russians, just their, just their, um, their whole approach has been uh, with, uh, you know, sort of ethno-historical essays by Vladimir Putin and Dmitry Medvedev and Potrushev all sort of beating this line that Ukraine is not a real country. Uh, They have to be taught a lesson. From a a military point of view, what has been really hitting the Russians is that um,
1: they failed
2: to get a, a corridor connecting Crimea to mother Russia. Most importantly, when it comes to the water reservoirs, so like uh, places like Mariupol uh, and so on that are there and are under constant bombardment and attack from the Russians, that they would want to take those places so they would be able to bring in water, fresh water to Crimea. I don't know. I mean, that, that's the logic of, I mean, uh, that, uh, I mean, that's military logic. I don't know whether, I don't know what they're thinking. I mean, if we knew, then we wouldn't be in this problem, but there are certainly uh, reasons to worry about uh, how, how it all looks together with the rhetoric coming out of Russia, including the rhetoric that apparently uh, CIA Director Burns ran into on his visit last weekend.
0: All right, Paula, the floor is yours. I tried to bring on David Priest, but it was an empty room. Uh, So you get to jump him in the queue. Thank you. Um, So my question is, what is the role of Germany as the country that is being offered as a place for these migrants, even though it might not have given that offer in the first place? And then attached to my question, someone asked, how does the end of the Merkel era? era changed that um, calculus as well. Great question. Uh, Thomas. you want to get us started on that?
2: Well, Germany hasn't offered anyone anything since 2015 when uh, Angela Merkel took in almost a million people and will not repeat that ever again because of the uh, political fallout from that, not only domestically in Germany and feeding the hard right, but the uh, how that also fed anti-EU sentiment in uh, in a hard right parties across Europe, from you know from Finland down to Italy. So that will not happen. Germany has offered nothing in Germany. Actually, on the other hand, Germany has been, I mean, its most recent behavior. I mean, on the bigger scene is that um, they condemned Ukraine for using a drone for taking out an artillery battery with which the Russians had been killing people in Ukraine. Um, I mean, this from a country that, um, who, uh, I mean, sir, sort of saying this is very bad, very bad, don't do this, we're you know, extremely concerned, blah, 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 whose own IG Metal built a training center for Russian Spetsnaz troops after the invasion of Crimea. So, I mean, they don't really have, I mean, you, you have, you're looking at a, at a rather mercantile state that basically as long as we can sell to the Chinese, which is their big thing in the EU, as long as we can sell to the Germans, as long as we get this pipeline, you know, screw ethics. Uh, now, on the new government, uh, it looks like uh, Annalena Baerbock will become the foreign minister. Uh, the problem that we see with uh, is that, for one, the foreign minister in Germany has been, uh, I mean, after Genscher in the mid-'90s, the foreign ministry deals with Latin America and development aid, and the political decisions come from the Bundeskanzleramt, or the the chancellor's office, uh, and that the SPD, while Scholz is a fairly uh, centrist uh, social democrat, he's got a whole bunch of hardcore anti-American, anti-NATO, pro-Russian people, young people in the SPD that are also in government, in parliament, in the, in the uh, South. So we don't know where it's going to go. And you could easily foresee a situation in which the foreign minister really is left, I mean, left to deal with development aid in Latin America.
0: And what do you think is, uh, are, are we dealing with, uh, is, is Germany likely to, pl- I mean, they don't even have a government right now, right?
1: So here's what I, you know, Germany in this sense is a little bit like the United States. In that there are different sets of interests that have different foreign policies. A little bit like in America, you know, sometimes what Congress does and what the White House does and what the business community does is, are all different. Um, and in Germany, that's um, that's very similar. Um, and there there is a part of the you know German foreign policy establishment that would like there to be a clearer European foreign policy, and that you know that would like to. Um, you know, p- push back harder against these things. And then there's another part that, you know, there's another part of the country that doesn't want that at all. And they, you know, they're they're in constant conflict with another. Um, I think it's important to know, and this is also, I just put the link in the chat. Um, this film that I referred to, they went to, they actually go to Germany to one of the shelters where um, people who have made it across Poland from Minsk, um, are staying. And and by the way, there's a lot of people. I mean, there's something like 9,000 now in Germany. So the Polish government, despite its show of force at the border and, you know, millions of soldiers and, you know, martial law along in the border regions, actually people are getting through. Um, and what do the Germans do? They process people. They put them in shelters for, you know, for 10 weeks. Uh, and then they say they're going to send them back. Um, and of course, you know, the really humane thing to do in Poland would be something similar. You know, although I wouldn't make it 10 weeks, I would make it, you know, two weeks. Um, You know, if you have a system whereby you accept people, you treat them like human beings, you don't make propaganda with them, um, you look at their credentials, you know, have they met the the legal requirements to be considered political asylum, to be given political asylum, uh, and then you send them back, that if you could do it quickly, then that would make a lot of sense. Um, And that seems to be what the Germans intend to do about this problem.
0: David Priest, proprietor of the new podcast from Lawfare Chatter, Uh, the floor is yours. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And Tomas, uh, both of you, thanks for joining us for this. This is great. I have not been tracking this closely in fact i've been a lot of details through your tweets Tomá. so uh thank you for that but that means that I, i i feel like i understand the regional dynamics as well as i should and in particular all i'm seeing from most countries in europe are expressions of concern and disappointment and i'm wondering if you're seeing signs that any eu countries are likely to move beyond this kind of, you know, bloviating you know, rhetoric, and instead actually look to take concrete measures.
2: Well, uh, I mean, it's, I don't know. Uh, I mean, we have um, the the foreign minister should be meeting any day now, uh, whether it's tomorrow or Monday. I don't know. Uh, at least uh, Ursula von der Leyen, chair, uh, and and also Jean-Michel, the I mean, the head of the Commission and the head of the EU Council, have both been tougher on this than anyone has than they have previously been. But we're still at the level of rhetoric. Uh, I would I, I assume that there is going and there is constant work going on at the moment. At the level of ambassadors in Coropair, which is like the foreign policy body where they meet uh, to discuss stuff, but everything, uh, on preparing sanctions, finding out the lay of the land, who was for what, you know, and objections from certain countries. So I assume that's what's going on. I, I really, I mean, I haven't seen anything yet, and, you know, the, the, so it's it's you know the the European Union is not a sort of real powerful actor when it comes to these kinds of issues, especially when it's there's something as contentious as offering your own uh, company's well-being to to uh, to stand up for human rights issues. It's kind of not a great track record.
0: It's sure great at regulating U.S. privacy policy, though. Um, So, uh, I, I want to ask, uh, Anne about, uh, some of the ideological divisions here, because from, from a, um, you know, a sort of us like, you know, democratic west perspective, the philosophical lines that separate, uh, uh, Lukashenko from uh, the Justice and Development Party in Poland, or <coughs> excuse me, the uh, the Orban people, are non-obvious, and yet they are. Uh, uh, while the uh, Justice and Development folks uh, uh, and and Orban's people are 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 uh, uh, reasonably aligned, the the uh, the. Uh, you know, Lukashenko is very much on the other side of some line, and I guess I'm trying to understand what that line is.
1: So, first of all, it's the Law and Justice Party in Poland. Oh, I was,
0: sorry, 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 sorry. And, and,
1: and you, as lawfare, you know, should 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 appreciate the name.
0: Yes, uh, uh, sorry, I, my humble apologies to the Law and Justice Party of Poland. Um, Uh, for thinking that instead of...
1: uh, If it were justice and development, we might feel differently about it, but it's not. That's right.
0: I'm sorry guys. I I mean uh, President uh, or or Prime Minister Minister Kaczynski, please forgive me.
1: Yeah, and, and that's very important because this is the main thing, the sort of central ideology of this party is that, and the main achievement they've had in the last several years is their attempt to Undermine the legal system in Poland to eliminate the Polish equivalent of the Supreme Court to, to politicize the justice system. Hey, and so the Ministry
0: of Truth is responsible for lies.
1: It's an ironic, you know, name at this point, um, and that's important to know. Um, but you know, you, you know, your point is really interesting because, of course. Of course, there are the, the differences between, you know, Fidesz in Hungary and Law and Justice in Poland and Lukashenko in Belarus. You know, there are differences of degree. I mean, the Poles don't lock people up or torture them. You know, not yet. Um, and so, so you know, there, there's no there's no brutality in either Poland and Hungary on the scale that there is now in Belarus. So I, I you know, I think we should be clear that those are very different. Different systems. Poland still has a real opposition. It has opposition media and so on. So it's not a um, it's not a dictatorship. Um, but of course, the the amusing thing is that at another level, you're right. But of course, the difference between these countries, you know these are all nationalist parties. So you know there are Belarusian nationalists and Polish nationalists and Hungarian nationalists. And so of course they don't like each other. I mean. There's, you know, they they're fighting over borders. You know, they're fighting over, you know, who's in who's in charge of, of, of what. I mean, that's what nationalists have always done. I mean, that's why um, wars used to start was because you had, you know, one nationalist party pitted against another one. Um, and so the so what you're seeing is the reemergence of the traditional kinds of competition between um, between ruling parties who see although. I should say that these are particular kinds of nationalists. So the Law and Justice Party is not a party that is acting in the interests of all of Poland. In fact, you could argue that it's not doing that at all. It's acting in the interests of its leaders and their domestic political prospects. Um, And the same, of course, is true in Belarus. The same is true in Hungary. Um, These are, it's about a ruling clique that wants to retain power and is seeking to use an international conflict as a way to keep itself in power. And actually that's the interesting thing, that's what all these kinds of political parties have in common everywhere. I mean, it's what theocrats in Iran and communists in Cuba and you know nationalists in Russia, this is what they have in common. Um, but this is of course also why they come into conflict with one another because you know once you're national you once you're not even national interests. Once your personal clan interests are in conflict with another group's personal clan interests, you know it creates a conflict.
0: Is it fair to say, Anne, that these are all the parties that Steve Bannon would run if he were the a national of Poland or Hungary or yeah. Belarus?
1: Yes. This is the kind of political movement that he, you know, in his madness, seeks to create, you know, a, a kind of a movement that is based around the idea that you can divide people according to who we hate and who we don't hate, who are patriots and who are traitors. Um, you know, you know, it's it's these, these are populist authoritarian movements. Um, and again, there's there there are big differences in degree. And I actually, you know, although I'm very critical of both the Polish and Hungarian governments, I don't think it's fair to compare them directly to Lukashenko. Um, but, you know, there's certainly, there is a trajectory on which they could eventually end up there, although they have not yet. Thomas. Thomas,
2: I was, was going to say that leading to the bizarre phenomenon of Steve Bannon trying to create a nationalist international. <laughs> uh, stymied... <laughs> I mean, no, no kidding. I mean, stymied by the Italian government not letting him buy or rent a monastery in northern Italy last year. I mean, but it, it was, it was, the idea was to draw them all together, you know, the Le Pens and the Saldinis. And I mean, it was just like, it's just the concept is so bizarre. But yeah, uh, I mean, what does unify them, uh, other than being nationalist, is the, some kind of bizarre adherence to homophobia and uh, basically legislating morality uh, these days since COVID also uh, uh, objections to vaccination. I mean, this is the whole thing that's been going on. And and of course, it's completely cynical. The, the uh, I tweeted this, I guess, Monday or last Friday, but there was this great thing in the Russian state TV, where Russia is like in a t- Total disaster with COVID deaths. Uh, saying you know everyone must be vaccinated, and saying if you vaccinate, you don't vaccinate, you will be fired. That's it. Was in Russian. In German, RT Germany said, "Do not vaccinate. This will this will poison you." So I mean, <laughs> this is the same. They're both. I mean, these are both outlets of the same propaganda machine of one single state. But you know, it works. It gets, I mean, people follow this stuff.
0: Scott.
3: So, um, to what extent do you I um, we talked about the Russian Ukraine um, border issue, which is in danger of being a military confrontation? To what extent is there uh, any danger? Um, of military confrontation between Belarus and Poland. The danger. But, and the what danger. would that look in, like? In, where,
1: yeah. I mean, the 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 danger right now is that um, it looks something like this. You know, Belarusian guards push four hundred people across the border and follow behind them. Polish troops, you know, a lot of really young, badly trained border guards are on the other side. You know, they start by shooting in the air. They don't know what to do next and they shoot at someone in the crowd or at the Belarusians and they kill somebody. I, you know, and then and this is by the way, I mean this kind of scenario, this kind of hybrid war scenario has been played out and has been imagined in various different ways. Um, as preceding a Russian invasion um, in the Baltic States and elsewhere for many years. Um, and so it's not, it's not entirely new uh, idea. But, you know, the idea that some incident could be deliberately used to spark an armed conflict is exactly what's in the center of attention here in Poland right now. And again, we're talking about, you know, the, the, normally the, 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 the Eastern Polish border guard. I mean, I was again, I was just down there. Um, These are people who, these are really nice jobs. They are, you know, state pensions, you know, jobs for life, early retirement. You know, it's a region with a lot of unemployment. People love these jobs. You don't really have to do very much. You don't have to work very hard. This is not a group of people who are trained for some kind of intense conflict or whoever believed they would expect it. I mean, these are mostly, you know, you know, people who thought they would spend their days, you know, writing reports and filling in papers and maybe walking up and down the border a bit, some of the, you know. Um, And so the, the idea that there could be some mass event that would, you know, that would create a violent reaction and then another violent reaction is exactly what's at the top of everybody's minds right here.
0: I think we should leave it there out of courtesy to our guests who have to go to bed Anne Applebaum, you're a great American, a great Brit and a great Pole. Tomas Ilves, you're a a great Estonian uh, statesman and uh, and a great American as well. Uh, um, uh, We will see you both. Thank you both for staying up late uh, to uh, uh, help us sift through all this stuff. Um, We will be back tomorrow with my uncle, John Turk, who has a new book out. Uh, He's been exploring places that you've never thought of and drawing political conclusions from them, which is what he does. Um, uh, He is actually gonna be in a place this time where he can appear on screen. There'll be enough, you know, not a shack in Montana where uh, uh, Ted Kaczynski might once have lived. That'll be 23 hours and two minutes from now. And until then, Scott?
3: We can't have fun anymore. And I'm sorry, this is going to be a downer, but we can, I I was going to say, use civilian populations as weapons. But that that doesn't doesn't work.
0: (laughs) Well, thank God Um, for
1: that. (laughs)